You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, MD, Jawbreaker, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. The morning of April 15th, 1644, began quietly on Chesapeake Bay. The people of St. Mary's, the capital of the Maryland colony, opened up their shops for business or marched into the fields. The fishermen were already on their way back home when a large Bristol flyboat anchored just offshore. By about mid-morning, Business was in full swing near the docks. A party of Iroquois merchants were camped just outside town doing a brisk trade. A Dutch merchant named David de Vries drifted lazily down the James River on his way to St. Mary's from his business in Jamestown. And a small fisherman's boat, still angling for her catch apparently, worked the waters in the distance. All of them De Vries and those on the fisherman's boat and everybody in town noted the two large ships that entered the harbor, but no one paid them any special attention. De Vries, who was on deck enjoying a smoke, watched with disinterest. Those two ships approached the Bristol flyboat at anchor, and they separated. They were moving around her, which was a bit odd. They had no need to do so. It's almost as if they were preparing to attack the Bristolmen. Those two ships moved to either side of the Bristolmen and opened fire with everything they had, and they had a lot of guns, far more than they advertised, far more than anyone giving the ship a passing glance could have seen. Captain de Vries, though, was not surprised. He'd been a commander in the war, and he'd seen the attack coming but apparently the Bristol captain did not. De Vries watched in fascination as the ships traded fire back and forth, and he noted that the two attackers were preparing to launch their boats. Alarmingly, De Vries was drifting right into their path, but he deployed his men into the rigging and piloted the ship away from the fighting, into a shallow draft, too shallow for any of those engaged to follow. 
From this vantage he could get a full view of the show, and he wrote in his journal, quote, Lying there, out of musket range, the Bristolman plied a gun so smartly that his foes could not launch their small boats to board her, nor avail themselves of further broadsides. Both parties kept up a desultory fire by single cannon which, however, did considerable damage to all three, and caused many casualties. End quote. The fight went on for hours, until the sun was about to set. Failing to have gained the upper hand, the two attacking ships pulled away from the battle. They made for the mouth of the James River, quite near to where de Vries lay at anchor. Now de Vries wasn't alarmed by their approach. No ship could take a pounding like they had and wish any further fighting. They'd only come here to lick their wounds. Besides, de Vries was a Dutchman, and he was neutral in this fight. This was a fight between Englishmen. De Vries hailed those two ships and offered to come aboard with food and supplies and the use of his medic. They happily agreed they could obviously use it, and the Dutch sent a contingent aboard the English ship. De Vries shared a dinner with their captains and a few of the officers, and heard their side of the story. The two ships had been in Maryland simply to trade their tobacco, but the merchants there in St. Mary's refused to trade with them for their suspected parliamentarian sympathies. Now, as it happened, the St. Mary's merchants were correct. These men were parliamentarians. But they were legitimate, licensed merchants, not pirates or outlaws. But they had been refused trade and made the decision to earn their profit by force. Come dawn, those two ships were long gone from the harbor of St. Mary's, so de Vries sailed over to the Bristolman and offered her the same aid. They accepted as well, and they needed it. That ship was in a bad way. The crew had been wounded almost to a man, including one innocent planter from Virginia who had been on the ship as a passenger on his way to Maryland. He'd been killed along with a shocking amount of the crew. But of course, de Vries wasn't shocked at this either. He'd seen war before. The people of Maryland, however, were shaken by this. They knew that the war was going on back in England, but the Chesapeake had been quiet up until now. This was the first sign that the war had come to America. There were two other groups of people worthy of note who were watching this battle from the sidelines, people who saw in the fighting an opportunity. The first group were those Iroquois merchants. This fight was shocking to them on a number of levels. First, this may have been the first time many of them had seen firsthand the sheer destructive power of those large English ships. But beyond that, though, there was an implication. This was a battle between Englishmen. Englishmen fighting Englishmen. It was, well, it was a surprise. It was proof that the English were divided, and that means they were weak. A Massachusetts mariner reported later on, having captured an Iroquois warrior who was involved, quote, The Poetan understood that they were at war in England, and began to go to war among themselves, for they had seen a fight between a London ship, which had been for Parliament, and a Bristol ship, which had been for the King. End quote. Those traders took their news to the most powerful man they knew, 
an old friend of ours, very old by this point, Chief Powhatan, father of the Princess Pocahontas and leader of the Powhatan Confederacy. The very man responsible for the Anglo-Powhatan War that so devastated Jamestown. In hearing that the English were divided and fighting amongst themselves, Chief Powhatan saw an opportunity, maybe, to push them out of America forever. This fight was to be his last hurrah, but it was a doozy. It only took them three days to prepare. De Vries, happily, had already left the area, because the Powhatan attacked, and it was immediately clear that Maryland itself was in danger of collapsing. Every man that could hold a gun or work a cannon was employed in defending the colony, and they barely managed to hold off the first wave. When they finally got a bit of a reprieve, Maryland sent off ships to beg aid from anyone back home in a position to give it. But those Maryland ships were engaged in a race to get back to England. They didn't know it, but they were, and they lost the race. They were beaten back to England by the other group that saw an opportunity in the fighting there on the Chesapeake on the morning of April 15th. A group of pirates operating on the Chesapeake with nefarious intentions. This is episode 157, Rascally Fellows of Desperate Fortunes. Let's take a second to catch up with events back in England. In January of 1642, King Charles I attempted to seize five rebellious members of the House of Commons. Now that was intended to be a, you know, a show of strength, but he failed to capture them and it turned into proof of his weakness. This, compounded with a myriad of other social and political and religious offenses, ensured that a civil war was going to break out. The king's enemies picked up their muskets and their pikes, and King Charles fled London. Now, for a time, the royalist forces he managed to cobble together did well. It looked like this revolt might just be a blip on the historical radar. But the king's marshals were, well, they weren't great. They made a lot of bad decisions, most of them for very selfish reasons. The parliamentarians, on the other hand, had passion and grit, and eventually they had the numbers. When that battle on the Chesapeake took place in April 1644, the parliamentarians were in a very good position. In just a few months' time, at the Battle of Marston Moor, they would go on to essentially win the First English Civil War. But even in April, they were in charge. The king was on the run, fighting for his life, which left the parliament running England. That's why, when that ship of nefarious pirates arrived, bearing news of the Indian uprising in Maryland, it was up to the parliamentarians to formulate a response. Now, some people did argue that they shouldn't help Maryland at all. It was, after all, just a papist-royalist stronghold. It was the enemy of the parliamentarians who were engaged in a war. But if the parliament was in fact running England, then they had to do the job. So they took action. They outfitted a few ships with guns and supplies. Shoes were the most prominent among them, but also, you know, food and medicine and shot and powder, that kind of thing. By the time the ships from Maryland arrived, they found a response team almost ready to go. Which is, of course, good news, right? Well, not quite. The ship that arrived bearing news of Maryland's imminent demise 
was none other than the pirate ship Reformation. The captain of Reformation, Richard Ingle, would likely have balked at having his Reformation declared a pirate ship, but until now she was a pirate ship. After his arrest and imprisonment in St. Mary's, and his dashing escape, Richard Ingle fled into the Chesapeake to prepare his revenge. And it was revenge that he was after. He spent the following months terrorizing the waters around Maryland. Were you to ask Richard Ingle himself, he very likely would have told you that he was not a pirate, but a brave and put-upon parliamentarian merely recouping his losses. Which is true, but doesn't make what he did any less piracy. And in all of that, Richard Ingle was not alone. The founder and one-time leader of the Kent Island Trading Post, William Claiborne, was equally furious and also out there on the Chesapeake alongside Richard Ingle. Both men were formerly prosperous merchants, well-known, influential politicians. Now they were forced to live outside the law with a price on their heads. All of that thanks to Baron Baltimore, Leonard Calvert, and the government of Maryland. So those disgraced men teamed up for their personal little war. But William Claiborne caught a lucky break. Remember the Providence Island Company, the Puritan pirates and colonists that attempted and failed to capture Providence Island off the Mosquito Coast? No drinking, no gambling, no singing, no sex, just pious religious services, twice a day. Well, once their ploy for the Caribbean fell apart, some of their investors decided to start a new corporation and try again. Now, some of those investors were really important power brokers during the Civil War and eventually in Cromwellian England. Some of them were involved with the Plymouth Company, which we'll talk more about next time. For now, they started the Providence Land Company, and they had a scheme to establish a colony in lands that technically belonged to Maryland. It's basically the same ploy that Maryland used in Virginia. Oh, you're not using this land? Well, I'll just go ahead and take it then. The Providence Land Company commissioned William Claiborne to found their colony. Claiborne was not a Puritan, but he was an ideological ally, and he knew the Chesapeake like none other. Claiborne did establish a colony, but it faltered in infancy. The men there were more interested in plunder than in planting. They engaged in a lot of piracy. Still, though, that job gave him a sense of legitimacy again. It brought him back into the legal world. He returned to Virginia and reestablished his plantation. He even ran for office. Now, that's good for Claiborne, but also for Richard Ingle. It gave him an ally in the colonies that could buy and sell goods and should the need arise to shelter him, and to feed him news of what was happening in the world. Which brings us, more or less, up to date, to April 15, 1644. The morning of the battle, Richard Ingle had his spies there at St. Mary's, as he usually did, to see if any rich prizes were leaving port. Those same spies were watching when the Iroquois uprising occurred. That gave Ingle the opportunity to weigh anchor and set sail before Maryland could get a ship out. But he wasn't going alone. 
William Claiborne stayed in the Chesapeake, but his old friend Thomas Cornwallis went back to England on board Reformation. You remember him. He was the prosperous planter there in St. Mary's that was contracted to arrest Richard Ingle, but also probably helped him escape. Cornwallis had the contacts back in England to get Richard Ingle in touch with the people capable of doing something about what was happening. He helped Richard Ingle secure two separate contracts from the Parliament. The first was for William Claiborne. They supplied them with a ship that was filled with everything that was needed to sustain Kent Island. They had food and guns and powder and shot and cannons, everything that they might need to make war. Of course, war against the Iroquois, naturally, that's what we're talking about. Didn't I say that? Well, if not, it was implied, right? The contract for William Claiborne was not specific in how he was to get those supplies to Kent Island, but it was implied that he would be in charge. It wasn't explicit, but they had given him license to retake the island. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Even more consequential, though, was a letter of Mark that they handed over to Richard Ingle. But there's an implicit question embedded in that action. Who, at this point, had the right to hand out letters of reprisal? The king? That was, of course, his prerogative, but he was busy trying not to get killed, trying not to lose a war. So what about the lords of trade? They did that kind of thing sometimes. Maybe the Virginia Company, or the Council of Virginia. No one knew who had the right to hand out letters of Mark, because everybody was so busy trying to kill each other. What about the Parliament? The Parliament who was currently running the show in England? Well, it's debatable whether or not they had the legal right to do so. But they did it anyway. But, I mean, who's going to stop them? The King certainly wasn't in any position to do so. And... 
Lord Baltimore and the government of Maryland would absolutely protest, but if things went according to plan, they wouldn't be a factor for too much longer. See, the language on that commission was somehow simultaneously specific and suspiciously vague. It read that Ingle was, quote, to seize and take all ships and vessels with their goods and company, in or outward bound, to or from any place hostile to Parliament, or which had traded with inhabitants of such place since their desertion of King and Parliament. End quote. Now, that can be confusing because of the language they use. It says that they were to attack any ships found to have deserted King and Parliament. But, of course, the Parliament who gave that letter of Mark to Ingle were in rebellion against the king, right? And they were. But Parliament was operating under this really convoluted justification in nearly everything they did. They argued that the king, quote-end-quote, the office of king, not the man, but that the king, quote-end-quote, could only exist under the will of the Parliament, which, according to the Magna Carta, was kind of true. Therefore, at this point in the war, when the king, the man, King Charles, when he was operating without the will of the parliament, then parliament spoke with the will of the king. It's a weird stepping stone on the road to the realization that they could just, you know, get rid of the king. Still, that letter of Mark was a license to attack any ships coming out of Maryland. But, of course, it suggested that he should only attack royalist ships, not any ship. But if he needed to attack a non-royalist ship, he could do that, too. It was a very broad letter of Mark. It's confusing, but they were often written that way, so that they could be interpreted as broadly as possible should court proceedings occur later on. Richard Ingle set sail for America. He had all of those supplies for William Claiborne and his own writ to attack his foes in Maryland. Right around that time, another ship set sail, bearing the proper governor of Maryland, Leonard Calvert. He'd been in England this entire time, mostly starting a family but dealing with some political issues as well. But now that Maryland was under threat, he was set to return. Which sets up our cast of characters almost perfectly. Thomas Cornwallis stayed in England after helping Ingle get his commission. So Ingle, Calvert, and Claiborne congregated back in the eastern Chesapeake. To his detriment, Leonard Calvert didn't know about the other two. He got back to the business of running his colony. The opening move, though, came from William Claiborne. As soon as he had his fresh supplies and his arms and his permission... Only about a week after Leonard Calvert returned, he sailed on Kent Island with maybe a dozen men and, quote, stirred up the inhabitants with his own company, end quote. He roused the people to insurrection and then arrested the lieutenant governor of Maryland, who was in charge of Kent Island. The treasurer of Maryland was also on the island, so he was arrested as well. It took two days of really virtually no fighting for William Claiborne, to once again command Kent Island and the fortress that guarded the approach to St. Mary's. Meanwhile, Richard Ingle was in Jamestown, busy recruiting. He got in touch with all of the undesirables, the rapscallions and rogues and roughs and parliamentarians. 
he invited them to, quote, go up in the quality of a man of war to Maryland to plunder the papists, end quote. Richard Ingle timed this raid perfectly, or maybe the planning had just been excellent from the very beginning. Governor Calvert sent out a crew to sneak onto Kent Island to assess their strength by land and sea. If possible, that crew was to retake Kent Island. That was a crew of St. Mary's elite. They were the best and bravest that St. Mary's had to offer, and at this moment, they were on Kent Island. That's when Richard Ingle arrived at St. Mary's on board the Reformation. However, he didn't bombard the harbor or sneak ashore in one of his canoes, no, the Reformation put in at the docks of St. Mary's. Richard Ingle disembarked with a letter from Thomas Cornwallis to his factor, a man named Cuthbert Finwick. It was a real letter. Thomas Cornwallis did have orders for his factor there in St. Mary's. But it also gave Richard Ingle a legitimate reason to be there in St. Mary's. Now, Leonard Calvert wasn't a fool, he certainly would have had Ingle arrested, or at least under guard. But at this point, all of his best men were on Kent Island. If the governor angered the crew of Reformation, they could easily overpower the forces that he had there in St. Mary's. But Reformation didn't attack. Their guns didn't open up. Their crew didn't come ashore and begin burning down houses. Instead, Richard Ingle delivered his letter to Cuthbert Fenwick. Nothing illegal, nothing seditious, nothing out of the ordinary. Just a regular bit of business. Of course, while Richard Ingle was engaged in business with Cuthbert Fenwick, the two or three men who had accompanied him ashore had a quiet drink at the local tavern. Certainly nothing to worry about there. Just a few men enjoying a quiet drink, buying rounds for everyone in the tavern, and informing a few of the less reputable sort according to the factor, that Richard Ingle had a, quote, commission he had from Parliament to plunder all papists and root them out of Maryland, terming them by the title of vermin, and to plunder all those that would take up arms with Calvert. End quote. That much is mostly true, but those men also spread tales that, in addition to Reformation, the impressive ship in their harbor, there were at least two or three more vessels in this fleet ready to come and destroy all of those who sat at the very top of the social ladder in Maryland. Rumors began to circulate, and eventually they aroused what was almost a panic. Right about this time, the news of the parliamentarian victory at Marston Moor was reaching the colonies. And here was this parliamentarian ship intent on plundering the papists, along with a supposed parliamentarian fleet. The people were terrified. Fear tore through them like a fire. They began to hide all of their wealth. The picture in my head is ridiculous. I imagine servants with giant packs of clanking silver on their back trudging out of town, passing other servants going the opposite way, carrying an equal amount of silver, nodding to each other and pretending that they're not obviously carrying giant packs of silver to bury in the ground. Cuthbert Fenwick, for example, buried all of the silver on Thomas Cornwallis's estate, and then the people hunkered down to wait for whatever was coming for them. 
Governor Calvert and the local priest each wrote a letter to Richard Engel in an attempt to mollify him. They offered him, quote, all free and friendly trade and at very good terms. It was a good offer, better than most traders in Maryland received. The governor contracted Cuthbert Fenwick to deliver the letters to Richard Engel. By this point, the Reformation was back in Jamestown, so Fenwick ordered three of Cornwallis' servants to ready a pinnace for a voyage. And those servants appeared to be going about their business. They were loading food and guns. Lots of guns. A surprising amount of guns for a short voyage. And on the day that Fenwick went down to the docks of St. Mary's to begin his voyage, he found the pinnace already out at sea. Not sailing away, just at anchor, offshore. And he hailed them, but the three men replied that they would not be coming back ashore. Fenwick was perplexed. Later that day, though, the Reformation appeared on the horizon. Finwick rushed down to the dock to meet them, and he noted that when Ingle came ashore he was accompanied by twelve of, quote, the most rascally fellows of desperate fortunes he could get in Virginia, end quote. Finwick greeted Ingle and his rascally fellows, and, as was his business, delivered the letters that he'd been told to deliver. Ingle read over them, and then said grimly, quote, they come too late. Quote. His fellows of desperate fortunes captured Cuthbert Fenwick then and there, and they took him aboard the Reformation. This is all very odd. It's hard to say for certain what's going on here, largely because our primary source is Cuthbert Fenwick's journal, and he was confused by all of this. Remember that he worked for a very good friend of Richard Engel. They knew each other already. That's why he was chosen to deliver those letters. It's possible that the factor was lying about everything, but I don't think so. I think that he was genuinely astonished by this whole affair. There are a couple of pieces to this puzzle. First of all, those three servants that loaded and took the pinnace out to sea, two of them were indentured servants that belonged to Thomas Cornwallis. Both of them, though, had been sold to Cornwallis by none other than Richard Ingle. That fact opens up all kinds of crazy questions and possibilities. Were those men actually indentured servants in the first place, or did they have a deal with Richard Ingle to pretend to be indentured, to work on Cornwallis' estate for several months, and then, when the plan is hatched, to get a fat cut of the profits? That's not likely though. What I think was going on is that Fenwick was a dupe here. He wasn't in on anything that was going on. But Cornwallis and Ingle were conspirators in this whole affair. I think that when Richard Ingle dropped off that letter to the factor from Cornwallis, that he had other orders for those three men delivered by Ingle from Cornwallis. And I think that they needed to keep Fenwick out of the loop so that, should the plan go south, this respectable man couldn't be caught up in any of it. It's possible that Ingle arrested him for the very same reason. If this should all go poorly, he would have an exceptional alibi being held prisoner on board the Reformation. Because crime, violent crime, was about to ensue. Now that the factor was on board, 
Reformation sailed just down St. Mary's River and landed at Inigo's Fort. There probably weren't any soldiers there at the time, but if there were, they surrendered immediately. There weren't any shots fired. Inigo's Fort, though, was the last line of defense for St. Mary's. With Kent Island and Inigo's Fort in the hands of these rascally fellows of desperate fortunes, Reformation sailed on St. Mary's. The biggest prize of the day, for Richard Ingle at least, came in the form of a Dutch merchantman that was there in the harbor. The Spiegel, it was called. The privateers captured this innocent, neutral ship, but they promised that they would give it back once their business here was done. They weren't pirates, after all. This was naturally to ensure no skullduggery on the part of the merchantmen. Spoiler alert, they never give the ship back. Then they landed at St. Mary's. I'd love to give you a rousing story of bitter fights to the death, but there was none of that. St. Mary's fell with virtually no resistance. Remember, most of those who knew how to fight were at Kent Island. Leonard Calvert, who might have led a defense, fled immediately with a few of the highest-ranking notables in the colony. They ran to Virginia, where they would be protected. The rest of the officials of the colony, well, they were arrested right out of their beds. The Secretary of State was nude at the time. Those officials were handed into the custody of the acting government of St. Mary's, the Protestant parliamentarian grandees there in the city. However, they didn't pillage St. Mary's. There was no rape or torture or murder. It was a quiet, quick, surgical affair. It was a victory for the forces of Parliament. But there was one target left to them that they had not yet taken. In the absence of Thomas Cornwallis, the richest landowner in Maryland, his manor house had been taken over by the government as sort of an arms depot. Richard Ingle intended to take it back from the government and use it as a base of operations. There was even a private dock there that he could get reformation to, which led to the Chesapeake and onto the sea. It would have been a perfect location. It was filled with guns and supplies and had enough to sustain the parliamentarian cause in the Chesapeake Bay for months, perhaps even indefinitely. All that Ingle had to do was to capture that manor house and hold it. That evening, on board Reformation, Richard Ingle summoned Cuthbert Fenwick to his cabin. They were to dine together. They shared a meal, and they shared some drinks, and before long they were laughing deep into the night. But soon enough, Fenwick got down to business. He knew that they were going to take the manor house of his employer come morning. I should note that the mistress of Cornwallis Manor was Fenwick's wife. They were looking after the estate while Thomas Cornwallis was in England. The factor asked to be put ashore so he could tell her what was coming, to prepare for the takeover of the manor house. But Ingle could only agree to that if Fenwick signed a warrant to his wife that secured the transition over to Ingle's control, a legal document that could ensure that nobody could go back on their word. The factor was hesitant. Richard Ingle was, after all, in the company of those rascally fellows of desperate fortunes, but Ingle assured him that none of the goods of the house, quote, would be spoiled or damaged, 
and he continued that he would, quote, wrong nobody that was in the house. That was enough for Fenwick, who agreed and signed the warrant. But he urged Richard Engel, before being set ashore, not to forget his promise. But Engel replied, quote, Nay, if I have promised, I will be as good as my word. End quote. So that's that, right? Another peaceful transition of power, right? Well, not exactly. That evening, Fenwick went ashore to inform his wife of the plan, and come morning a small landing party, led by Ingle's top lieutenants, went ashore. Ingle wasn't there. He was in St. Mary's dealing with the fallout of his takeover. His lieutenants, though, presented Mrs. Fenwick with the warrant, and they took over command of the manor house. But then... Well, Donald G. Chamet tells it better than I could. He writes in Pirates on the Chesapeake, quote, In the hallways they discovered cupboards filled with spices, wax, drugs, candles, shoes, and an iron-bound chest containing satin petticoats laced with gold and silver. There were Turkish carpets and great chests filled with quilts, curtains, cushions, and linens. In the parlor were magnificent inlaid chairs and table, an enormous cypress chest valued at 130 pounds, ornate Flemish wall hangings, curtains, and carpets. By the fireplace lay a great pair of andirons, tongs, bellows, and sundry items of convenience. In other rooms they discovered shelves of books, tapestries, deep feather beds, and fine silver plate. And then he goes on at length to describe smith's tools, farming implements, and heads of cattle. But he continues... There were dozens of valuable hogsheads of tobacco. The household staff consisted of three black slaves and numerous indentured English servants. And, most happily for the thirsty privateersmen, there was a great store of beer, wine, and, quote, strong waters. In all, Ingle was now commander of an estate whose goods alone were valued at 2,632 pounds. Thomas Cornwallis, even on the Chesapeake frontier, had been a man accustomed to a, quote, splendid manner of living, end quote. This splendid standard of living was unlike anything any of these fellows of desperate fortunes had ever seen or even imagined. It was shocking and awe-inspiring. But then it turned to disbelief and disgust, and finally into rage. This opulence was disgusting. These men had to scrap for every loaf of bread they had ever eaten, and this man was hoarding wealth unlike anything that any of them had ever seen. These men, these poor, bedraggled men of desperate fortunes, saw for the first time in their lives how the other half really lived. Chomet calls them privateersmen, but I believe these men are pirates, and I think they're about to prove it. According to the journal of Cuthbert Finwick, the pirates, quote, plundered and carried away all things in it, pulled down and burnt the pails, killed and destroyed all the swine and goats and killed or mismarked almost all the cattle, took or dispersed all the servants, carried away a great quantity of sawn boards from the pits, and ripped up some of the floors of the house. Thomas and John Sturman forced themselves of the house as their own, dwelt in it so long as they please, and at their departing, took the locks from the doors and ye glass from the windows, 
and in fine ruined his whole estate to the damage of at least two or three thousand pounds. End quote. They ravaged the estate of Thomas Cornwallis, the close friend and ally of their captain. A few days later, their captain, who had promised not to despoil the manor house, arrived and saw what they had done. But instead of punishing these men, instead he ordered that they set the manor on fire. This was an act of destruction for destruction's sake. It was the beginning of an era known in colonial history as the plundering time. For the next two years, Richard Ingle and William Claiborne and all of the men who followed them reigned over the colony of Maryland. They reigned, though, in blood and fire. The Reformation, or the Spiegel, which was never returned to its owner, or any of a number of ships that were added to their growing fleet, would appear on the horizon near a wealthy estate. Then a party of armed men would disembark and come ashore, and they would demand a payment be made to Thomas Cornwallis, for whom they said they were agents. And at first they did only approach men who did owe Thomas Cornwallis money. If the payment was made in good faith, they would give the person a receipt and go about their way. But if a payment was not made, they would take it by force. At first this meant that the men would only march into the barn and take an amount of tobacco equal to what was owed to Cornwallis. But as the weeks dragged into months, things began to change. Before long, those armed men were approaching plantations who owed nothing to Thomas Cornwallis. They were just royalists. And then, eventually, they didn't even have to be royalists, just people who had a lot of land and a lot of money. Those who did not pay had their entire warehouse emptied and sometimes set on fire. That could be a year's worth of tobacco grown on these giant plantations. But then things went from bad to worse. A planter who had previously risked perhaps losing profit now risked not only having his product stolen and warehouse burned down, he risked having his fields set ablaze and his house ransacked, and sometimes it got worse than that. Sometimes his family would be assaulted, beaten, or even raped. And finally, when these men, these privateers, were ready to go, they would burn his house to the ground. Now, in the diary of Cuthbert Fenwick, he said that these men marched away with all of their servants. And there's something to that. On nearly all of these large estates, after the pirates were done despoiling the place, the indentured servants, and, more and more frequently, the African slaves, well, they would leave with the pirates. They weren't captured, they weren't prisoners, they just went with them. They joined the crew, and they would go on to pillage some other rich manor house. And I've got to tell you here, I have a hard time ginning up any sympathy for these planters. Bought and sold and beaten and exploited. Well, it's hard to summon a lot of sympathy for those who did. The selling and the buying and the beating and all of the exploiting. 
The plundering time would last for almost two years, but the real violence only lasted for a few months. You see, as Maryland became a dangerous place to live, at least for people of means, well, all of those people of means left Maryland. They went back to England, they took all of their gold and their silver, and they left America. All of these rascally fellows of desperate fortunes were now in command of Maryland, but the colony was at that point almost empty. Finally, though, Baron Baltimore and Leonard Calvert, together with a coalition of those who still had land rights in Maryland, raised a force to take the colony back from the privateers who now controlled it. By that point, though, William Claiborne and Richard Engel and Thomas Cornwallis were well out of that drama. Once they saw what the colony was turning into, they left it behind. Cornwallis and Claiborne would live relatively prominent lives in the American colonies, while Richard Engel would die at sea some years later. Next time we're going to leave the Chesapeake behind, and we're going to look at the colonial and piratical events all along the other parts of the Atlantic coast of the colonial world. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, those of you who have donated or left a rating or a review or recommended this show. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find them at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, you can find us at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.